Do you want me just to start in? Or? No, we're going to introduce you. So I just want to give everyone a second to get in. Okay, got it. Everyone to load in and then we can get started. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to today's MitoAction Monthly Expert Series. My name is Kyra Mann. And I'm the CEO of MitoAction, and I'm here along with Stephanie Tomlinson, MitoAction's Patient Support Coordinator, and we are honored that you took the time out of your day to join us. Today's presentation will be recorded and available on the MitoAction website in the coming days, as well as on our podcast channels on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. If you're joining us via phone, I would encourage you to follow along with the presentation slides that can be found on our website at www mitoaction.org slash resources slash genome, G-E-N-O-M-E dash sequencing. If you're joining us via computer, you should see the presentation on your screen. We encourage you to ask questions throughout the presentation using the Q&A feature on the bottom menu bar of your screen. If you're calling in via phone, feel free to submit your questions to us by email at info at mitoaction.org. We will do our best to get through as many questions as possible at the end of today's presentation. Anyone in the MITO community knows the challenges faced trying to obtain accurate genetic diagnosis. For many, that journey can last for many years. It leads to frustration, inability to receive proper care, and often feeling like you're being bounced from doctor to doctor with no answers in sight. Joining us today is Dr. Richard Bowles, who will discuss whole genome sequencing with reanalysis and how this can lead to improved diagnosis, treatment, and clinical outcomes for mitochondrial disease. Dr. Bowles completed medical school at UCLA, a pediatric residency at Harbor UCLA, and a genetics fellowship at Yale. For over two decades, Dr. Bull's clinical and research focus has been on changes in genes involved in energy metabolism, and more recently, ion channels and their effects on the development of common neurodevelopment, neurodevelopmental and functional disorders. He has over 80 published papers, mostly in mitochondrial medicine. For 20 years, Dr. Bowles was a faculty member at Keck School of Medicine at USC and a practicing medical geneticist and metabolic specialist at Children's Hospital Los Angeles. Dr. Bowles became involved in genetic testing to facilitate the translation of the vast amounts of acquired genetic knowledge into applications that improved routine medical care and was a medical director of Cartagen and I hope I say this right, Lineagen, Cortagen and Lineagen in the past. At present, Dr. Bowles is the director of neurogenomics program at NeuroAbilities in Voorhees, New Jersey, in which he consults on patients via telemedicine. About half the patients he currently sees as a physician have one or more functional conditions, especially cyclical vomiting syndrome, other forms of complex migraine, and chronic fatigue syndrome. He also treats patients with an autist autistic spectrum disorder or related neurodevelopmental conditions. His clinical practice is devoted to using information, including genetic testing, to guide, to guide options for therapy. In addition to California and New Jersey, Dr. Bowles is licensed in Arizona, Florida, and Pennsylvania. Still with the current pandemic, he can consult via telemedicine with patients anywhere in the USA. 
As part of the peer-to-peer -peer program, Dr. Bowles can assist physicians in ordering, understanding, and acting on genetic testing data both nationwide and internationally. Dr. Bowles also does legal consulting, especially those with multiple functional conditions that are considering fictitious disorders, Munchausen by proxy, and medical child abuse. Finally, he is the primary designer of energy needs and spectrum needs. These are nutritional products with 40 and 33 active ingredients, respectively, designed for individuals with neurodevelopment and functional disorders, emphasizing assisting mitochondrial function. Please join me in welcoming Dr. Richard Bowles. Well, thank you very much. So this um, title slide really says it all. You're trying to get the sequence data, and that's actually part of the mitochondrial DNA sequence of humans. They're the A's, T's, C's, and G's. And to translate that to what that means with the mitochondria and even more important, what it means for the patient. Um, I'm gonna just jump into some case reports. Um, Pei um, was diagnosed with autism at 18 months. Um, he had some unexplained vomiting. Um, you're gonna see a lot of them that have neurodevelopmental disorders like autism and functional diseases such as vomiting. Uh, hypotonia, mental health issues, particularly OCD and anxiety. Um, he was very irritable and highly aggressive. Um, functional disease issues, again, constipation, easy um, fatigue, sleep problems, night twitches. So in many ways, this is a common patient with autism that has additional mental health and functional disabilities. Um, a very rare variant was identified in the creatine transporter. Creatine is sort of a battery used um, for power. That's why bodybuilders use it for, to put more power in the muscles. But the brain is what really requires creatine more. People that have creatine disorders particularly have brain problems, mental retardation, autism, seizures, et cetera. So this is an inability to get creatine into the brain. Um, creatine itself didn't work because the transporter doesn't work. It's on the X chromosome so that males only have one copy. And if it's not working, you really can't get creatine into the brain. Um, uh, but the family did a, a study of cyclocreatine. Cyclocreatine is actually found in some energy drinks. Um, on cyclocreatine, oh, cyclocreatine gets across the brain, doesn't require the creatine transporter, and then goes to creatine in the brain. Um, you can see in the green here, these are what actually the OT mentioned that he was much better at. Um, the OT called up the father and said, what's going on with him? He's so much different. Um, you see that anxiety, language, behavior, aggression, frustration, awareness, attention, all of those improved dramatically. So. This is the mitochondrial talk, but what are mitochondria, but they make energy. The creatine transporter is not in the mitochondria, it's on the cell membrane. But if you can't get creatine into the cell, you can't get it into the mitochondria. And so this is an example of an energy disorder, which is not physically in the mitochondria. So technically this is a secondary mitochondrial dysfunction but, and not a mitochondrial disorder, but I think everyone would say, you know, well, this is really an energy disorder. And really the bottom line is primary and secondary mitochondrial dysfunctions are really just arbitrary definitions. My next case is, um, is functional disease. Pay, um, this is um, Peyton, she has cyclic vomiting syndrome. If those that don't know cyclic vomiting syndrome, this is a really severe condition that's actually not that rare at all. Um, patients will have nausea and vomiting and they'll be very lethargic and fatigued. 
the episode can last hours, it can last days, and in rare cases can actually last weeks. And then it, the episode goes away and they go back to baseline health. And then they have another almost identical episode later, and then later, and then later. Sometimes episodes can be at random. Sometimes they occur every month. They can occur every two months, every two weeks, and sometimes people have other sequences. And they can go on for years and years. She did that from, the, from her first birthday until she was 10 years old. Um, as what often happens around the time of puberty, the cyclic vomiting goes away and it goes to migraine. Um, it, go, it went to 24-7, 365 migraine. She also had chronic pain throughout her whole body, sort of fibromyalgia-like pain, but she was too young to get that diagnosis. Multiple admissions to hospitals for bowel cleanouts. But it wasn't any of this that was her chief complaint. Her chief complaint was chronic fatigue. Her fatigue was so bad that if she came downstairs from her bedroom and had breakfast that she was wiped out the rest of the day. She was an excellent student and she was distance learning years before the pandemic um, because she was just unable to get to school. She was so fatigued. She did everything by a computer in her bedroom. Um, DNA sequencing revealed uh, a polymorphism. It means a, a common variant in the TRAP1 gene. This variant is found in 1% of the population. I mean, say, well, 1% of the population doesn't have severe chronic fatigue syndrome due to TRAP1, but it, they are at risk. I had several patients that had the same triad of GI problems, chronic fatigue, and chronic pain that had the same TRAP1 variant. Um, to give you an idea, the, the average person has approximately 3,000 variants in their genes which are less than 1% of the population. So it's not like you find something, oh, well, that's a rare variant. No, everyone has around 3,000 or so variants that are less than 1%. So it's much more difficult. And since I do whole genome sequencing and essentially everyone now, I find about 3,000 rare variants in everybody. So what does TRAP1 do? It's a chaperone. Um, what chaperones do is they get things to go where they are supposed to go and they don't do anything they're not supposed to go on their way there. So that's what chaperone is, right? But a molecular chaperone is a protein that wraps around other proteins to get it where it's supposed to go. And it doesn't do what it's not supposed to do, unravel, which is to denature or cook on the way there. So chaperones are made at times of um, cellular stress to protect the, the proteins against the cellular stress so that they're not destroyed. The um, TRAP1 is the major mitochondrial chaperone. In the mitochondria, there's a lot of reactive oxygen species. I mean, that's where the energy is made. It's a very oxygen-rich environment that is um, a lot of things going on. Proteins are at risk, particularly at times of stress, and TRAP1 is made. The, um, so it made perfect sense that in, without the chaperone working well, that you would have a trouble that proteins would unravel in the mitochondria and you'd have mitochondrial dysfunction. Now this particular variant, remember I said it was at 1%. Um, there are two other variants that are also in this gene that cause the same symptomatology, not just this one. But this variant, like the other two, are in the ATP binding site. And on the lower right there, you can see a little cartoon of what the TRAP1 molecule looks like with an X-ray crystallography on a computer model. Um, there's two different subunits that are identical. One of them is in pink and one of them is in silver or gray. And you see that they kind of, the two different unit, the two subunits that are identical meet up together to make sort of a claw. And you see the claw is closed right now. And then when the claw opens, it's like this. And then now you can see it closed in the little cartoon on the lower. 
Um, the claw grabs proteins and then closes and then keeps them from unraveling. And that's how it works. And it takes energy to do that. And the ATP is the green on the very bottom. The ATP binds into the trap line um, and then the ATP is broken, which puts energy to allow the claw to open and close and do what it's supposed to do. The mutations are all in the parts of the protein that touch ATP. So using computer modeling, and I had, um, this was done at Georgia Tech with uh, collaborators. They said, okay, well, let's predict what the computer would look like with the mutant protein with the mutation in it at the binding site. And they said that the binding site is a different shape and size. So then they took the computer and said, every single molecule you can think of, every single drug, every single over-the-counter supplement, let's stick it into the binding site and see which one binds. I wanted to find something that binds to the mutant binding site, but doesn't bind to the wild type of the normal binding site. This is a dominant, meaning that a mutation is inherited from one parent to a child, but the other parent, you, you don't have a mutation. So on half the protein you have, a mutant protein and in the other half you have a normal protein. The mutant protein is presumably doing something bad. So I want to bind the mutant protein, turn it off, but not turn off the normal protein because you need the chaperone function. Um, they came up with SAMI, which is an over-the-counter um, medication. It's an over-the-counter supplement. Some of you may be on SAMI. Um, she was put on SAMI and she got a lot worse. She stopped the SAMI um, and she went back to her baseline. So Sammy is doing the wrong direction. It's probably turning on the mutant even higher. Okay, we wanna turn the mutant off. So the next one was Gansetron, which is also known as Kytrol. That's its, um, its brand name. Kytrol made her dramatically better. Her vomiting, her headache went away, her pain went away. She didn't have any more um, clean outs and her fatigue went by by about 50%. So she was able to go more, more than that. She was able to go from being homebound to being able to go to school part-time about 50% of the time. So it made a huge difference. So these are two examples of people with mitochondrial disorders. And this is a primary mitochondrial disorder because trap one is in the mitochondria. Um, but this is not a, mi a mitochondrial disorder because her disease is not only the TRAP1. Remember, 1% of people have it. It's influenced by the TRAP1 to a large degree, and treating the TRAP1 made a difference. This is the reality of mitochondrial disease in 2021, when we can sequence all of the 3 billion nucleotides. It's complicated. It's messy. This is why it's been fooling everyone for so long, is the, is the complexity is enormous. Okay, so who am I? Um, well, for the last quarter century or so, I've been mostly a clinician. I think of myself as a physician first and everything else second. Um, but I have many different hats. I do many different things. Um, I was at Children's Hospital for 20 years and now I'm in private practice. Um, and the, the practice is in New Jersey, but I live in Pasadena, California. Everything is done virtual. It's the, the way of the future. Um, and I see patients all around the world. Um, in the peer-to-peer -peer program. Um, I'm also the chief medical and scientific officer of NeuroNeeds. Um, as a NeuroNeeds, I produce products for patients with disorders because it's not good enough in my mind just to figure out what the problem is, um, but then I want to find something to, to, to solve it. And as much as possible, I try to design products to solve at least some of the common issues that my patients see. 
Um, I have been medical director of different DNA sequence companies, that which allows me to look at a whole genome sequence and to, to do the interpretation as if I was the lab. Um, I was at Cortigen for five years, I was at Lineagen for a while, and I was at two other labs. Right now, I'm a free agent. I work with the best labs. Nobody pays me. I'm the client that, um, that orders DNA testing. I now work with Variantix. I don't have a conflict of interest with that, but I think they're the best lab, and that's why I use them. Um, I also do expert witness things. Um, I do expert witness, particularly for those cases that have like fictional medical child abuse issues and also involved in the vaccine court. And then I'm still writing papers. I'm still writing up right now. I'm writing up my, um, the last, uh, I have about 80 patients that we have DNA data on with cyclic vomiting syndrome and writing that up for publication. Um, I was, I had it when I had a lab, actually had a wet lab that had, you know, test tubes and all that and people working for it and NIH money, but that was 10 years in the past. Um, that's what I was at, at faculty at USC. So the usual, you know, disclosures and everything, um, we're talking about personalized medicine. In personalized medicine, you find out what's wrong with a patient, that individual patient based upon the genetics of that person. So the treatments that come out of that are new treatments to, in many ways that have never been tried before in that disease before. In many cases, no one's even known that disease before. So they're certainly not FDA approved. Um, Chytrol is not FDA approved in, in, in migraine. And cyclocreatine is not FDA approved in autism. These are, these are personalized medicine treatments for the mutations that were found in a patient. And some things work and some things don't, like I mentioned with Sammy. Um, I'm also one of the founder and I'm an officer of the scientific and medical officer of NeuroNeeds. So I make supplements for patients with the type of conditions that I have. I will be talking about some of those supplements when I do that, realize I do have a conflict of interest. I do recommend my own supplements and my own patients um, when I think that that's the best option for that patient. Um, some of this seems like it's magical because, I mean, sequencing can kind of seem that way. Any advanced technology can seem magical to those that were seen before that. It also shows that this, I'm a science fiction geek with this quote here, and my daughter loves to have her picture taken. She's a little bit bigger now. She's in high school. So this is the machine that makes it happen. Illumina is the company that pretty much makes the sequencers that are used throughout the world. Illumina HiSeq 4000 is sort of the Lamborghini. Um, to give you an idea how big this machine is, the right-hand side of it is the size and shape of a refrigerator. So this is a big unit. It costs a million dollars. That's actually what it costs. Um, but it can do a human genome in about three hours. The human genome project that was, you know, maybe ended about 17 years ago or so, um, sequenced the first person's genome. It required, it was done in many, many countries throughout the world. Um, and it took about 10 years and billion dollars or so to sequence that person. This machine will do it in, in uh, three hours. Um, so these machines are obviously with that expense, they're running 24 seven. And even the laboratories generally don't have these machines. They contract out to other places to run the machine because the machines are so expensive. So mutation variant. Um, I'm an old geneticist. I use the old terms. We used to call them mutations. 
like language changes over time, nobody wants to be called a mutant, so I'm not supposed to use the word mutations. Everybody still uses it, but it's, I'm going to try to use variants. So mutations are disease-associated variants. I'd love to have a nice word to say that instead, you know, but it's a better word because many variants, I mean, the average person has tens of thousands of variants from the reference sequence on the computer or the average human sequence, the most common, I should say, at that location. And the vast majority of them don't do anything. A lot of them make us all individuals. Some of them protect us against disease. Some of them are risk factors for disease. And every once in a while, one of them will cause disease. So you can think of a variant on a two-dimensional axis. So you can think of it being rare at the top or common at the bottom. A common variant would be like 49%. So the reference sequence would be 51% or 50.1% and the variant is 49.9%. That would be a very, very common variant and probably normal. But there are some common variants that predispose towards disease. There's even variants that are 25% of the population that increase or decrease the chance of a disease. So common variants can be important. They can give you some information. Common variants that are small, like one nucleotide, are often called SNPs. If you heard about that before, that's in the lower left here, because small is to the left, so single nucleotide polymorphisms. The TRAP1 variant that I mentioned is seen in 1% of people. The other variant I mentioned in the um, creatine disorder had never been seen before, so that's way, way up here as rare. If it's extremely rare, it might be the cause of disease. It could be normal and it could be a risk factor. So risk factors can be rare, common, or in between. But if it actually causes disease, it's going to be rare. The most rare is a novel de, de novo mutation. De novo just means new in Latin. A de novo mutation means you sequence the parents. And by the way, they really are the biological parents, because of course we know that. And it's not in the parents. So that would be a new mutation that's only in that child, in that patient. And that's the newest you can be, where it's only, and if it's never been seen before. And then, like I said, common would be about 50%. So variants can be anywhere along there. The rare ones might be disease causal. Any variant can be a risk factor. What about small versus large? Well, when we used to use sequencing versus like a microarray, the sequencing did the small variants, the microarray did the large variants, and the one in between, no one could find, no technology and just we didn't find them. Now with whole genome sequencing, it does the whole thing. So it can find the really big ones like the chromosomal abnormalities that will find like Down syndrome or something like that you can find by whole genome sequencing easily. It will do small variants, a single base pair is the smallest and everywhere in between. So there's not that gap anymore. So this comes from the, um, the UMDF. Um, this, this, the formatting is mine, but I took all of the different things, and this is a few years old, um, that were on their website as being associated with mitochondrial disease. And I put them into systems. And the main thing I wanna show about this is that, you know, that mitochondria make the energy for all cells. So with mitochondria, you can get pretty much any cell in any system causing any problem. And that's because energy is required for life itself. And so if you don't have the energy, you, a lot of things can go wrong, almost anything can. But there's two major categories that affect, are a lot of it. There are the neurodevelopmental disorders. And that's really basically, there's something wrong with the higher nerves, the, the higher brain functions 
and it occurred early on, as opposed to dementia, which occurs later in life. So you can see in the green are the neurodevelopmental disorders. And then there are the functional disorders. Functional disorders doesn't mean they're any less rare or any less severe, but the functional disorders are involved the function and mostly of the function of brain or, or peripheral nerve. And that's what you feel, the pain, fatigue, nausea, um, anxiety, depression. These things are, are functional. And the blue ones here are, are functional. Um, and so like the chronic fatigue down here in the lower right is what, is what um, Peyton had. And then autism over here was, is the major thing that Pam had, the two ones that I went so far. But of course, both of them had many other things as well. And there's a lot of other obviously issues here, but neurodevelopmental and functional disorders are very common in mitochondrial dysfunction, mitochondrial disease. And they're the ones that I deal with mostly because quite frankly, because nobody else really dealt with them. I mean, there are other people that they're far and few between. And so I decided to go into these because I thought that there was a great need. So my next case report is on Kelly. Um, Kelly presented to me as a teenager. She's now in her late 30s. Um, she has autistic spectrum disorder, severe migraine fatigue. She had cyclic vomiting, irritable bowel, POTS, depression, anxiety, biochemical testing. You know, the stuff that we used to do in the past revealed a mitochondrial disorder. Um, she was put on a mitochondrial cocktail that's vitamins and minerals that help the mitochondria work, and it particularly are antioxidants. Um, and here's the, here's the cocktail that I used like 25 years ago when I met Kelly. Um, and then when sequencing came around, it found that there's two mutations in the glutaminase gene, two rare mutations, one on each allele, one from each parent. Um, that means that she has, assuming that both mutations knock out the ability, she can't, she has no glutamase two activity. The little cartoon in the lower right shows you that it's on the very low to right here, glutamase here. Glutamine is one of the amino acids. Glutamate is another amino acid. So this involves the transfer, the one amino acid to another. You say, well, that's not really mitochondrial. Well, it happens in the mitochondria. So technically it is a mitochondrial disease, but glutamate goes to alpha ketoglutarate, the next step. And alpha ketoglutarate is in the Krebs cycle. And so it involves energy metabolism. In fact, I thought there was a Krebs cycle disorder because her Krebs cycle was numbers were all out of whack. And so this made sense. It's two steps out of the Krebs cycle, but still it involves feeding the Krebs cycle. And you have to keep feeding the Krebs cycle. You say, well, it keeps going around and around, but there are the intermediates go out and you have to feed it to keep going in. Um, then, so I figured, okay, well, let's give her alpha ketoglutarate. I never thought about giving an alpha ketoglutarate. Yeah, you can go to a health food store and you can pick it off the shelf, but you can pick up like a hundred different things that work in the mitochondria on, off the shelf. I never thought about using AKG in her. I put her on that and she got much better. And here, oh, by the way, that, that, that it involves cellular energy because it involves alpha ketoglutarate it includes within the mitochondria. So technically it's a mitochondrial disorder. It's a primary mitochondrial dysfunction versus secondary. Does that really matter? No, but, um, and then she improved dramatically on the alpha ketoglutarate and we kept increasing it. And now she's on, I think she's on a few grams a day. And no, uh, anyway, she's, she's doing 
much better. Her um, autism has improved. Her physical manifestations have improved. She's not normal by any means, but she's much better than she was. Um, this case, so it, to some degree, those were kind of like the typical mito cases, not what a lot of people think are mitochondrial disease, but people in, in places like this with mito action, and they say, you know, they see the things with mitochondrial disease that are a little bit atypical. So those were typical atypical cases that I've discussed so far. This one is one that almost nobody would have thought about being mitochondrial. Um, it's a secondary mitochondrial dysfunction. 13 year old female presented with developmental regression in the first grade. So she lost abilities and then she recovered. She was given an autism diagnosis, but it was never really typical. I mean, she recovered her abilities. Um, and then she had some auditory and visual processing delays that were diagnosed at age seven. But she's doing, but she was doing essentially grade work. I think she had an aide, but she doesn't have intellectual disability, but she had some processing delays and she needed some, some um, accommodations at school. Um, at 12 years of age, she had like a, a regular, like a cold, a head cold. In one day, she lost all of her academic skills. She couldn't even do basic arithmetic. She couldn't read at all. Her behavior regressed to being like that of a toddler or an infant. And sometimes she was almost catatonic and would just stare out into space. She had weird seizure-like episodes that, um, I mean, with my history, they were always preceded by a headache and they always had muscle weakness, but that wasn't anywhere in the history. So they were like seizure-like episodes in which she would have jerking more on the left side and she wasn't able to walk. Um, her heart rate was high. She was very pale, but that wasn't in the medical record either. I got that out. She would lose her, her, her bladder um, function and she would get clammy and she was nauseous. But from what everyone saw, she had seizure-like episodes and she couldn't walk and she couldn't talk and she couldn't do anything. And of course they kept doing EEG after EEG and they never showed seizures, including during this event, one of these events. So they thought that she was crazy, that it was that, that there was, you know, that she went down from being a normal, a basically a normal student and a completely normal girl to acting like an infant because of some psychological issue. And then she had some functional issues. Um, she's had migraine in the past, chronic pain, chronic fatigue, and POTS. She also had frequent infections. She had a diagnosis of, of um, common variable immunodeficiency and was on high-dose IVIG, um, immunoglobulin, and high-dose steroids. And despite all of that, she, would, she was really you know, out of it. So I said, well, what is this? This is hemiplegic migraine and episodic ataxia due to a calcium channelopathy. This is a leaking calcium channel causes these mutations. You can also get it by a calcium pump doesn't work. So prolonged episodes of headache, confusion, ataxia, and other neurological signs and symptoms, um, especially if the weakness is asymmetrical, but actually most of my patients have symmetrical weakness but if it's asymmetrical, it's almost a giveaway. Um, some, if it's asymmetrical weakness of pain, they'll call it hemiplegic migraine, but people don't usually notice that and she wasn't even able to speak. That hemiplegic migraine and episodic ataxia is a mutation in the calcium channel A1A until proven otherwise. 
I must have 25 patients with mutations in this gene. Almost all of them were given diagnosis of mitochondrial disease at one point. They have mitochondrial dysfunction on laboratory testing, it's real. And they go in and out of episodes. This one I use as a case report because this one really fits the symptoms directly. You can read it up in the literature and it's like, oh, she has all of those. Why didn't they make the diagnosis? Well, people usually don't. Um, this is a weird type of disease. Most of my cases are far more atypical than this. And other types of other problems are calcium channel A1S, which has more of a muscular presentation, and the ATP1A2, which is the pumps that move the calcium back in. So these calcium channel problems, the problem is the calcium leaks into the cell because the channel leaks. And this is the pump to pump the calcium back out. Um, where is her mutation? She has these exact mutations in all three of them. So she has a really the whole disease better than I've ever seen in anyone because she has a mutation in three different genes that do this. Um, each of these, I should say variants, each of the variants are rare and highly conserved. That means you look at hundreds of different animal species and the human amino acid at that location is the same in hundreds of animals, which means that it probably changing that makes a difference. Um, th that's what we call high conservation. Low conservation would be, you look at hundreds of species and every animal has a different amino acid in that location. That means the protein works no matter what's at that location. So that conservation doesn't tell you if it's a disease or not, but conservation is important. If it's highly conserved, it might be related to disease. If it's low conservation, we usually throw them out, but there are exceptions. So, so interventions, the mitochondrial cocktail, is one of the most important parts in the intervention for these hemiplegic migrants. That alone, and they get a lot better. Um, cal this is potassium chloride. Why potassium? Because the pumps pump sodium in one direction and potassium in the other direction. So to get the potassium into the cell, you need to pump the sodium out of the cell. And to pump the sodium out of, but then you have to pump the, the calcium to pump the sodium. It's complicated, but if you, if you put any of them out of whack, they all can go out of whack because of the pumps. If you give a lot of potassium, and I mean a lot of potassium, it's pres prescription, and acetazolamide, which is also known as diamox, it's used for people that, have high, that, that want to hike in the Rockies at high altitude. It's also a diuretic for blood pressure, and people take it if they have high, increased intracranial pressure. It's a common medication, has few side effects. Um, so on mitochondrial cocktail, potassium and acetazolamide, um, her cognitive function went dramatically. In February of 2020, she tested at kindergarten in reading and first grade in math. And remember, sometimes she was infantile, but this is when they were able to test her. A year later, exactly the same test, she was reading in the eighth grade and math at the seventh grade. She, is in the, she was in the eighth grade in February. So she went from kindergarten to eighth grade in reading uh, first, and I'm um, first grade to seventh grade in math. Her regressed behavior stopped. She became a normal teenager in terms of behavior. Her ataxia, that's like a baby or a drunk would walk, that resolved. Um, and the POTS and the anxiety improved. They're not completely gone. We're working right now on her chronic pain and her fatigue, which aren't completely gone, but they are much better. So clearly making a diagnosis in her and treating her made her a lot better. I have never seen one of these channelopathies that didn't have mitochondrial dysfunction. 
Um, there's many reasons for that, but it may just be the easy one. Um, if, if the channels are leaking, you need to run the pumps 24 seven to pump it back on the other side and that uses ATP. And you can run out of energy because you use it too quickly or if you can't make it enough. And a lot of my patients that previously had diagnosis of mitochondrial disorders now have diagnosis of channelopathies. Was I wrong before? Is, does that make a difference? Um, yes and no. They still have mitochondrial dysfunction. They still have abnormal testing to show that their mitochondria are not working right, although the tests often are better now. And they still need cocktail. They get better on cocktail because, they're, because they are run out of energy. They still need the antioxidants to take all that out. So in that regard, mitochondrial dysfunction, who cares if it's primary or secondary? We're gonna treat it like you know, we treat mitochondria. On the other hand, now that we know that it's a primary channelopathy, we can treat that with, with potassium and acetazolamide, and that can make a big difference. So yes, they have mitochondrial dysfunction. Yes, they need to be treated and they need all of the precautions and anesthesia and everything else that all of the mito patients need. But making a diagnosis makes a big difference because it gives you another way to treat it on top of that. So ion channels, ion channels move ions. Um, sodium, calcium, potassium. There are other ion channels as well. Um, chloride, magnesium. What membrane? We're usually talking about the plasma membrane and the outside of the cell, but also the endoplasmic reticulum, the mitochondrial membranes. You need to move ions across any membrane. So ion channelopathies are really important causes of paroxysmal disease. Paroxysmal disease, there's a mouthful. It comes and it goes. Migraine, epilepsy, cardiac conduction defects. And migraine can be a lot of weird stuff. So a lot of patients that have mitochondrial dysfunction, the channelopathies are, are common. There's a lot of other secondary mitochondrial dysfunctions. And a lot of my mito patients have other diagnoses, but they still have mitochondrial dysfunction. But I'd say the, the most common, the single most common, the polarity more than anything else um, are channelopathies. And almost all of the channelopathies are treatable. And so diagnosis does matter. Um, here's another case report. Um, so let me just move this here. So Carl, not his real name. Um, when I have the real name, people, a lot of the patients, they're all over the internet and they talk about it and they want me to use their name. This one, you'll be obvious why I, I don't use this name, though he knows that I give his presentation everywhere. Um, he had abdominal pain, nausea, vomiting, and pallor. So he made criteria for cyclic vomiting, but the episodes were really abdominal pain, very, very severe abdominal pain. I saw him during two of these episodes and he was screaming in pain more than somebody in labor or the kidney stone. Um, there, it's, it's a dominal migraine. So the episodes, they became very frequent to the point he was in pain pretty much all the time. And he had every organ removed from his abdomen they could remove, his gallbladder and his appendix. He didn't get better by the way. So he was on narcotics, a lot of narcotics, fully disabled and, and, and he was labeled as a drug addict. If you're under 18, then it's mom does it, right? And if you're over 18, then the patient's looking for drugs. Um, anyway, that's unfortunately the way a lot of people see our community. Um, he had migraines, fatigue, GERD, anxiety. Um, I saw him at first at 23, abdominal migraine, put him on the cocktail and amitriptyline, and his episodes went from pretty much all the time to being very rare. But 
he's a patient that's not very compliant. He moves from state to state, from job to job. And he went off of the, um, of everything. And then he got sick again. I, I know of six different times that he's gone off of therapy. Um, but anyway, it got to the point that these things didn't cut it anymore. The cocktail had worked before. He has secondary mitochondrial dysfunction, but it wasn't cutting anymore. Um, at age 26, he became refractory to the treatment. Um, and he had four to seven day episodes of abdominal pain. Um, each of them were four to seven days each, 10 to 15 ER visits in a five month period. Labeled as a drug addict, giving narcotics and then they last 12 hours and then he's back. Okay, so doing the sequence on him found three known mutations. Those are mutations that were in the literature in the RYR2 gene. Ryanidine 2 is a calcium channel across the endoplasmic reticulum. It is really a stress-related calcium channel. So when stress hormone, norepinephrine, is released from the brain, it goes to the endoplasmic reticulum and it causes the channel to open. So calcium goes out of the endoplasmic reticulum where it is sequestered, it's pumped in there and it goes into the cell and it causes the cell to do its thing. Um, Propranolol blocks the, the release of calcium from the RYR2 calcium channel. So he was placed on propranolol and the episodes went away. So I know five different times he went off of propranolol, the episodes came back and then he went back on propranolol, they went away again. His episodes were stress triggered as they are in many people. People with stress triggered episodes often have mutations in the RYR2 gene. Um, and these episodes can be migraine or cyclic vomiting or abdominal migraine, or they can be dizziness. And there are many other episodes I've seen in people. Um, sometimes people just kind of lose their cognition and just kind of act like they're drunk or whatever. Um, and you, you, the free things are to try to control their stress as much as possible because the stress hormone is doing that. Propranolol at high dose and mitochondrial cocktail to kind of, because the, when the, Calcium goes into the cytoplasm, it causes the mitochondria to turn on, pretty much the whole mitochondria, because in a stress response, you need to run or to fight. And so the mitochondria need to turn on to make energy. So they kind of burn their mitochondria out and you need to give them a lot of antioxidants. Um, Margot um, was, went to places all over the country um, with um, one to three, one to three day long episodes of vomiting and dizziness that would make her completely um, disabled in bed and miserable since infancy. And many places said that she had migraine, um, which is really the best probably single word for it, but they weren't able to treat her. I mean, the medications weren't working. Um, at about 12 years of age, the dizziness became by far the worst part of it. And it was chronic and unremittent. It didn't go away. She went to status migrainus. So she was in a migraine constantly. So for about a year, she had so much dizziness, she really was unable to walk without somebody holding her arm. She would fall down. So she was totally disabled by this. Um, found a sequence, a disease associated variant in the RYR2 gene, same gene that Carl had put her on propranolol and she was already on the mitochondrial cocktail, um, but I increased the cocktail and her disease just melted away. Um, she kind of went wild on that because beforehand she was totally disabled. So she started working at children's hospital. She had a full-time job. She was doing full classes and volunteering at school. 
So she really decided she was going to live the life that she had missed. Um, she's in college now. I see her about once a year and, and, um, and re, um, fail her medication. She's doing well. So the basics, um, you know that there's the mitochondrial DNA. It comes only from the mother and it has 37 genes and there's the nuclear DNA and that's in the chromosomes and there's 23,000 genes, but about a thousand genes um, that are in the, about a thousand proteins in the mitochondria are encoded in the chromosomes, the nuclear DNA coming equally from both parents. And then the protein has to be imported into mitochondria. So mitochondrial disease can be due to a mitochondrial DNA abnormality, which is inherited from the mother to a child or a new mutation or a nuclear DNA, which can be inherited from both parents or either parent to the child or a new mutation. So all of the ones I've spoken about so far are nuclear DNA mutations that can come, they're either new mutations or they come equally from both parents or they're dominant, they come from one parent, it can be either one. So now what I'm gonna talk about is um, a, a few cases with mitochondrial DNA abnormalities. Those are still important, even though, and those were most of what I used to talk about and most of us used to talk about that because sequencing, we could sequence 16,000 base pair mitochondria 20 years ago but we couldn't sequence the 3 billion base pair chromosomes. Now we do this and we find a whole bunch of stuff, but this old stuff we used to talk about still important. Maternal inheritance. Um, the, colored, the color means that it's the same. So this grandmother, her sequence, whether it's good, bad, or in between, is gonna be inherited by all of her children, regardless of the gender. Her boys are not going to pass it down because it comes from the woman only. It's in the it's in the um, the egg, not the sperm. And her daughters are going to give it to all her children, regardless who the father is. Right. So that everybody in red has exactly the same mitochondrial sequence. How do we know this? I've done sequences on many many families. Believe me, everybody in the family has the same sequence. Everybody that's in white has a different sequence. Of course, unless it's in a consanguineous, incestuous family, then it might be otherwise. But usually, they're all different. And I have other fam you know, families I've sequenced everybody and everybody who's married into the family has a different sequence. So you would say, well, everybody, if this is a mutation, everybody in red should have the same mutation, they have the same disease. Well, that's the kind of stuff they tell you in grade school, right? That has no bearing in reality. Genetics is messy. It depends on all the rest of the genes in the environment. I mean, what you, you will get. This is a real family. In fact, the some of the people in the audience might be in this family. All the people that are in the black have the same DNA sequence. These are the, and this is the type of problem. CVS is cyclic vomiting. You can see migraine, depression, um, pain, bipolar, you know, so different things in this family. This is a real family. This is a mitochondrial DNA mutation. Why is it different in different people in this? Well, you can say, well, it's the nuclear background, right? They all have the same mitochondrial DNA mutation, they do. And it's not heteroplasmy for those that think of it. This is a homoplasmic mutation. Everyone in this family has the mutation at 100%. The um, many years, decade after I did, made the slide, I realized that these three here have the TRAP1 mutation. Trap, um, the TRAP1 is the chaperone that I mentioned that um, Peyton had. So they have, a chap they have a TRAP1 mutation. 
And so they have more significant disease than other people in the family that have just have the same mitochondrial. So it's in the mitochondrial DNA and in the nuclear DNA in this family, that's actually pretty common. I see that a lot. Okay, so case report, William. He presented when he was six years of age, kind of typical mitochondria, pain, myopathy, that's muscle weakness, fatigue, constipation. Um, he was an excellent student. Biochemical testing showed mitochondrial dysfunction. Electron microscopy, when we used to do muscle biopsies, showed mitochondrial disease. Pedigree showed probable maternal inheritance sort of like the pedigrees, but not the one I showed you. Found a mutation, 55%, this is heteroplasmic in the, on the mitochondrial DNA in the cytochrome B gene. So, and the mother was 78%. The mother had mild manifestations, but she has higher because this is in blood, not what's going on in brain or nerves or muscle. So it's, it's gonna be different in different tissues. So had the mutation in him, put him on the cocktail, energy level got better, headaches went away, muscle cramps, abdominal pain all went away. So mitochondrial DNA abnormality, yeah, but this is kind of, why are you showing this slide? This is not really all that interesting, right? Izzy, the sister is the interesting one. She was the completely normal sister that we didn't test because she was a little girl that had no symptoms. Um, she developed chronic right ankle pain. Every day she would complain that her ankles hurt. I don't remember how many MRIs she had, but it was a lot of them, a lot of x-rays. No one can figure out what the problem was. Nobody ever thought about it, that it might be mitochondrial. Um, she, we did the mitochondrial DNA on her. She had 78% heteroplasmy in there. Um, she also had very severe anxiety. Um, I mean, she was in kindergarten and her mother had to be with her all day long. She couldn't even go to the bathroom without her mother being with her. She could not be with her grandparents without her mother being with her. This was not just separation anxiety. This was so severe that it was completely disabling for her. Um, put her on the mitochondrial cocktail and just a little bit of Zoloft, the anxiety melted away. She was able to go to sleepovers without her family and the pain went away as well. So this shows you that it, Think about you know, what we call oligosymptomatic or lesser symptomatic relatives, but also you know, just pain and anxiety um, can be mitochondrial um, without the whole thing. Um, another mitochondrial DNA case, Simon. Um, he had high functioning autism and which meant that he was a normal, that he had social issues, but he was in normal classes doing normal stuff. And when he was 12 years of age, he got severe back and shoulder pain. And then he got vertigo. Um, the, the, that means like the room is spinning around more than just dizziness, chronic fatigue. So he had crashes. These are paroxysmals that for days, and there'd be three to six a month, he would be, the room would be spinning around and he would be so tired, he really can't get out of bed. And he'd be in really bad pain. And of course, all the tests came back negative. Um, family history showed that migraine in a bunch of different people, all matrilineal, but nobody took that history. They said, well, how could, you know, no one even ask about that. Um, and of course, you know, he has these crashes, 
It's a conversion disorder, right? He's autistic. He must be crazy. He's just, you know, he doesn't want to go to school. Kids must be teasing him or something. It's like Freud, you know, has said, you know, he, he wants to get out of school. So he's making these symptoms up. Maybe he even really believes he has vertigo. Um, I kid you not. That is really what he was called. So an outside geneticist said, hmm, this looks like a mitochondrial disease, and then um, did mitochondrial DNA and found a large heteroplasmic mutation. This is not just a mitochondrial DNA mutation. This is a serious mutation, the type of mutation which is fatal. Um, per the literature, large deletions are always fatal. Simon's still doing well about, you know, I think it's about 10 years later almost. I have a lot of patients with this. When they're on cocktail, they tend to do very well. Um, I also had many years ago, I had a, a deletion patient who was doing really well on cocktail for five years. Mother thought that she, she couldn't afford it anymore. The CoQ it was too expensive, stopped the cocktail. She crashed and went into renal failure, went on dialysis, but she, she never got better. She was dead three, year, three months later. So it, it's, this is a very serious diagnosis, but I've had several patients do well long-term on cocktail. And will they last another 50 years? I really don't know. I hope so. Um, I also, I sequenced all of the DNA and found that he has a calcium channel variant. Um, and that, and with the calcium channel variant, it predicts paroxysmals of disease, like what he was doing. Um, he, and he developed cyclic vomiting after I had all of this. So I said, okay, he has cyclic vomiting due to a calcium channel apathy. I know how to handle that. So I put him, he was on cocktail, but I put him on a cytosolamide for the calcium channelopathy and his cyclic vomiting went away. He had about eight episodes or so of vomiting that were a week apart. Each one was a week um, until that um, it came back to my attention because everyone thought it was a GI problem, but it's really um, a migraine problem in the nerves. Um, another case report, a really quick one. Um, 16 year old male, autism, disability, intellectual disability, migraine, GI. Again, neurodevelopmental and, and um, functional manifestations. Um, sequenced the parents and him and found um, a deletion. 84,000 base pairs are missing in him that are not in the parents in two genes used for ubiquitization. Ubiquitization are genes that tag proteins for destruction. Um, if you can't tag proteins for destruction, you have old proteins that causes mostly neurological disease. So this has never been seen before. This is a new disease. But now that I have a, you know, a, I, I use, I know how to use a whole genome sequencer and I use it on undiagnosed patients. Literally, I find a new diagnosis at least every month that had never been seen before because we're looking at 3 billion nucleotides and almost none of it anyone's ever looked at before. Um, the mother reported that he had um, very significant um, improvements in the mitochondrial cocktail. In addition to these, he also had mitochondrial DNA variants that are associated with migraine. So he got better on, he was put on the cocktail um, and then these are the improvements he had. She ran out of the cocktail, the behavior went back to the baseline it was before she started cocktail again and then she, he went back to being improved. So this is probably not um, a um, placebo. Um, just to go over this really quickly, this is cyclic vomiting syndrome and nothing else in a normal 20-year-old college student. Oh, he has, he has some ulcerative colitis and back pain. The genetics are complex and R-way R2 mutation, we discussed that before, calcium channelopathy. 
he has a deletion of 25 genes, one and a half million base pairs on chromosome 17, including a gene that's involved in making myelin, which are the insulation for nerve cells. Mutations in this gene cause charcomary tooth neuropathy. So this is a pathogenic mutation that should cause neuropathy. Cyclophomony is really a neuropathy of the, of the gut. Um, he has a four base pair deletion in the pole gamma gene, gamma polymerase, the gene that makes and proofreads the mitochondrial DNA. This is a known pathogenic variant. This alone gives him the, this, a mitochondrial dis disease diagnosis, a primary known mutation. And he has in the mitochondrial DNA, four other variants of interest that may or may not cause disease. So he has a channelopathy, mitochondrial dysfunction, and a neuropathy at the same time. He was a patient that for years, I was putting him on different treatments and I wasn't able to get him better. He was one of the few patients that was still cycling. Um, almost nobody cycles anymore with DNA technology because they said, okay, it's not this or that, but he really has all three of the major causes of cyclic vomiting syndrome, the mitochondrial, the channelopathy and the neuropathy. And now he's doing better. He's doing much better on combined therapy on all three of them. In particular, I'm doing a lot more mitochondrial therapy. Okay, so I've said a lot about primary mitochondrial dysfunction and secondary mitochondrial dysfunction. They both have defective cellular energy metabolism. That's what mitochondrial dysfunction is. In the primary, the genetic abnormality is physically in the mitochondria, in the secondary, it is not. You can label the primaries as a mitochondrial disorder. There's really no good label for secondary mitochondrial dysfunctions. Primary mitochondrial disease is not rare at all. It's uncommon, but it's not at all rare. Secondary mitochondrial dysfunction is very common. I mean, just think of it, stroke, heart attacks, the drowning, strangulation. Those are secondary mitochondrial dysfunctions. What oxygen is needed is for, is for the mitochondria. That's where oxygen is used. If you don't get oxygen, the mitochondria can't make energy. If the mitochondria can't make energy, brain cells die very quickly. So there's a lot of disorders out there that have secondary mitochondrial dysfunction. The vast majority of autism has mitochondrial dysfunction. Most of it's not mitochondrial disease, but some of it is. Um, I mean, cyclic vomiting, secondary mitochondrial dysfunction. Most of it's not mitochondrial disease, but some of it is. Most of it's neuropathies and, um, and, and channelopathies, but they all have mitochondrial dysfunction, but some have primary mitochondrial disease. Um, in the case reports that I've showed you so far, these are the genes that are primary mitochondrial dysfunction or mitochondrial disease. And these are the ones that are secondary that wouldn't get the diagnosis of mitochondrial disease. So what's the difference? Well, their mitochondrial targeted therapies are used in both. But if you make a diagnosis of a secondary dysfunction, that will give you an option for therapy directly at the primary mutation. In many cases, not in every case. Sometimes it comes up with something, I don't know what to do about that. But it's, so yes, mitochondrial dysfunction is an important diagnosis. And many of you in the, in, that are on this probably have secondary mitochondrial dysfunction. You don't have to get rid of your mitochondrial disease label and the way that you think of yourself if you do sequencing, because quite frankly, it really isn't a difference. It's all arbitrary. Um, you still need the cocktail. You still need the precautions. You can still be part of this group. 
You won't throw them out, will you? <laughs> but find the diagnosis because that, you, that may give you another avenue on therapy. So what do you do with mitochondrial dysfunction? Um, increase energy supply, decrease energy demand. The, a lot of other people have spoken about that. And also you protect mitochondria against reactive oxygen species. Um, with the secondary dysfunction, this is important for primary and secondary. When you're talking about secondary dysfunctions, the antioxidants become even more important in that. But this is the way that you do it. And then of course you treat the symptoms. The, you know, like I said, a channelopathy, you use drugs like propranolol, cetazolamide, et cetera. You treat the actual symptoms um, and then you treat the mitochondrial dysfunction. So you treat the mitochondrial dysfunction, you treat the primary non-mitochondrial disease if it's there. But you can get these things like you can get depression in a primary mitochondrial disease and they still, re they still respond to an antidepressant medications. So this is, you all know your metabolic pathways, do you not? Krebs cycle in the middle here. It's complicated. How many of the patients that I've described to date is there mutation somewhere on the slide? And by the way, there's about a thousand genes on the slide, thousand enzymes. One, Kelly with a, with a glutaminase is on the slide. Every other patient mutation is not even on the slide because to make the mitochondria work, you don't only just need all of the enzymes, but everything else as well. You really need to sequence all of the DNA. I, I mean, we used to use panels when the technology was at, panels were the best that we could do. And they were great at the time because that's all we can do. And a lot of these patients I'm showing you got their diagnosis on panels. We later did whole gentlemen found other things sometimes. So what are the components of a mitochondrial cocktail? Well, these are the things that I consider to be the primary, meaning there's many things that are not on this. You say, what about this? And what about that? And everybody has different opinions on it. I think almost everyone thinks that CoQ should be part of it, and almost everyone thinks carnitine and probably riboflavin, but there's different opinions, and there's certainly a lot of people out there that says, but you didn't put this on there. Um, these are what I think are the primary, but by, by no means everything. And you can take all of these sec separately, but that's a lot of time and money and effort, and you're getting a lot of filler. And it's not just the fact that you can take, you know, take a few here or take a few there. You should take all of them. Here's a little Krebs cycle. Here's the electron transport chain. This is what it really looks like. This is an electron micrograph. This is an actual photo of the Krebs cycle and the electron transport chain. Where are they? They're integrated together. They're not really separate. And this is a false color. So these are not really the colors but this is what it really looks like. It's an assembly line. Electrons start in one end and they go to the other end. Here's an assembly line, Ford Mortar Country Company at the turn of the century. Hyundai at the turn of the next century. You can see that there's been a lot of improvement over a hundred years, but cars are still made the same way. Let's say that this guy got his vitamins and is working twice as fast to make cars. What do you think is gonna happen? Are you gonna make twice as many cars? No, you're gonna have total chaos. Let's say this machine got its jolt of electricity is making cars twice as fast. There's going to be even more chaos. In an assembly line, just giving something, well, let's try riboflavin, or let's try ribose, or let's try alpha-ketoglutarate, or let's try creatine. It's 
many people have side effects from that because energy is an assembly line and you're just boosting one part of it. But what if they all got their vitamins or what if all of these got energized? Assembly lines have less. When I started making my products, people would say, oh, well, there's so, so many people have side effects for everything that we give. There's just no way you can put 33 or 40 active ingredients together and no one will be able to tolerate it. But the reality is, is far more patients tolerate these than tolerate individual supplements, in my opinion, because energy is an assembly line. Um, this is again on autism. Why do I talk about autism? Because I see a lot of patients with autism and it's common in mitochondrial disease, but it doesn't mean that other things are not important. But on autism, and again, almost, I would say over 90% of the patients with autism that I've seen, probably over 95% have mitochondrial dysfunction on, on testing. Um, and then they, they did a, a supplement that has, um, I think it had about 35 active ingredients somewhere around there in the 30s. And these are the changes. So it wasn't just that they got better in other ways, but their core autism problems, hyperactivity, tantripping, overall improvement, receptive language, their core autism problems got better on multiple and they had almost no side effects. Um, and then here, Bonnie Kaplan was using it on depression in adults and um, found that if you give a formula that has like 30, 40 different active ingredients, that tolerability is extremely high. So people tolerate it. Um, my own formula, the, the, it's a powder. This is a conflict of interest because I own part of the company. Um, all of these are in it. 33 active ingredients, comes in two flavors, um, made in the United States. And this is what I use for kids or for anybody who quite frankly wants a powder. We spent a lot of time working on the taste and it, 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 it tastes pretty good. Um, there, the alternative is um, there's one um, AARC or ANRC is an alternative one that's made by, um, that's made by an Arizona group. That's pretty similar because we keep changing our formulas when somebody else puts something in, we say, oh, that's a good idea. We'll put that in too. So that's capitalism. We each in, you know, have improved on competition. Here is the one for adults or adolescents, but kids can take it as well. These are um, capsules that has 40 different active ingredients. It's very similar to the spectrum needs in powder. It's 40 active ingredients. I wanted to put everything in the powder or everything in the capsule. So you can just take one thing, make it easier, make it cheaper. Kids, I know they don't you know, have a hard time taking this stuff. The CoQ levels were not high enough and it was giving CoQ to everybody. You just can't get the right CoQ into this because this is a powder. Inside the capsules is a powder. You can't mix it oil in the powder. So I, I had to decide, okay, I'm going to put the CoQ separately. Um, Ubiquin all with an OL at the end. Whoops. This is the important one here. This is five times more bioavailable than ubiquinone. Ubiquinone, by the way, it rarely says that word on it. It'll just say CoQ, coenzyme Q10. If it's ubiquin all, it says it all over the place. Like here, this is our product, CoQ needs. It says ubiquin all, and then it's CoQ, um, a particular type of CoQ, which is even more highly bioavailable. It gets into the blood, gets into the brain. Um, the one that I make is in lemolin oil, which is the oil from lemon peel. Most of them are in soil. Some people have trouble with soy, some people don't. 
Um, but I really, if you don't use this one, use a Ubiquin All product. And you have to unfortunately give that on top of it because otherwise we don't get CoQ. And I always adjust blood levels. Um, CoQ blood levels, carnitine blood levels, vitamin D blood levels, make sure that I'm on the right amount. Okay, um, a lot of people are afraid about genetic testing because if they find out that it's something genetic, then they can't do anything about it. And they, you know, then all these treatments, all this biomed and everything they're doing won't work. But that's really not the case at all. Genetics isn't like the fates where the, it, you're, the length of your life has already been measured and there's nothing that you can do about it. Um, is, it I think of it like a card game is that you're given the cards at conception of your genes. Um, you can read your hand, you can look at your hand carefully and play your hand better, or you can not look at your hand and play your hand poorly, but it's not gonna change the fact of what's in your hand just because you know what's in it. When you know what your genetic potential is, you know it, it does translate to therapy. It really makes a big difference. And there are cases that I make diagnosis that I can't treat, but at least the diagnostic odyssey is over and you know what the problem is. It's not that other person or that other test is gonna find something. But most of the time, far more than 50%, knowing the genes does make a difference. Um, what do I recommend in testing? Um, I recommend whole exome, um, that's all of the genes, um, plus, uh, microarray to look for large mutations, plus mitochondrial DNA, plus pharmacogenomic testing, which looks for, um, I use this all the time. Um, do you need a higher dose or do you need a lower dose of the medication? So a lot of times the higher doses that um, are higher than anyone gives, they said, well, I already tried this medicine. It didn't work. Well, your liver eats that medicine up. Your blood level was zero. You need a higher dose. Or you say, I tried that medicine and I had really bad side effects. Well, your liver doesn't know what to do with that medication and it builds up to toxic levels. You need a really, really small amount. People say, oh, well, that means I, you know, I can't take it. That medicine's toxic to me. No, no. You can get the same clinical effects with less money because you'll need a quarter of the starting dose and you can get the same effects. So it costs less and you can get the same effects. So knowing these makes a difference too. I strongly recommend whole genome because whole genome includes all of this in the right laboratory. Plus you get much more of it. You get all of the in-between the genes. And by the way, the genes, the exome is only 2% of the DNA. You get about 99% of the, of the genome. There are some places that are really hard to sequence, but you go from like 2% to 99% sequencing. And here you get the small and the large, but you get the small, the large and the in-between. Trio, that's parents plus child. For a neurodevelopmental disorder, autism, bad ADHD, epilepsy, or for birth defects, you really absolutely need it because it's a, probably a de novo mutation not found in the parents. If it's everybody in the family has migraine stuff and your kid has migraine stuff, then you can probably get away without the parents. But it does help to have it because you can see which came from what side. You can get what we call a singleton or only looking at the, at the, the patient. But in, I usually recommend TRIO, but there are cases like that in which singleton is fine. Um, at Neurabilities, which is it's based in Voorhees, um, New Jersey, um, they have offices all over the Philadelphia area, Eastern Pennsylvania, Southern New Jersey. Um, but we also do telemedicine. Like I said, I'm in California. 
Um, this is, uh, we put together 46 of the last cases in which we did peer-to-peer. Um, -peer. Um, that is, is that Dr. Mintz, who's the, the main, the person who started NeuroAbilities is the physician and I help as the genomicist to answer the, you know, to look at the genetics and to give him answers. Um, out of 46 patients that we looked at, um, 33 of them had, for, had a neurodevelopmental disorder. In some cases, it was just ADHD. Um, and I'd say that over half of them had functional problems. A lot of them were cyclic vomiting or migraine or chronic fatigue. So these were either neurodevelopmental or functional, um, and many of them had both. Um, an exact molecular diagnosis, this is what you have, this is the cause of your disease, was given in 55%. And by the way, only 9% of those diagnoses were on the laboratory report. 52% had, had diagnoses that I found when I went through the sequence and found it myself. So why can't I find sequence status that the labs couldn't find? Well, I used to work for four different labs. I was the person in the box in the laboratory. I didn't know the patient. I didn't know the family. I had some medical records, but very little. And I couldn't go back and ask questions. So I just found what I found and I put a whole bunch of stuff out there. But when you're the physician or you're talking to the physician directly, and you can look over this, then you can say, okay, well, these are the ones that are important. Um, and you can ask questions. Is there a family history of white spots? Is there, are the fingers bent? Is there problems with sudden death in the family? Is there low hypoglycemia? Is the creatine low? You know, what, you know, these sort of things. We can ask and then kind of pin it down to what the problem is. So when the genomicist and the physician are the same person or they work together like we do in the peer-to-peer, -peer, then it makes a big difference. But the ones that you want to know about are 95% had a treatment recommended based upon the DNA. The treatments were supplements, medications, or dietary in, almost, in the vast majority of them. Um, there were some other things like exercise or things like that, but almost the, the, they, every single one had one of these. Supplements being the and dietary and medications, so those were the three big ones. Um, and most of the, the changes were based upon what I saw in the sequence, not based upon what was on the laboratory report. So you get a high likelihood of diagnoses and a high likelihood of treatment. You say, well, shouldn't these be reversed? Shouldn't you get more treatment? Shouldn't you get more diagnoses and less treatments? There are a lot of the 45% the that didn't have an exact diagnosis. Many of them were cases in which there were several different um, genes that were candidate genes. I can't say that this is the cause of the disease, but this looks like it might be related. And this is a treatment that might help if so. And so a lot of those got better. That's what a candidate approach. It says like, okay, there's four different changes that may or may not be related. Three of them I know how to treat. These are the three therapies. Let's talk about it in terms of what the likelihood of each one being helpful and the, um, what kind of experiences you might see positive and negative with these therapies. Let's look at the pros and cons and decide which one to try first. And then here is the information about um, how to reach me to reach the program at Neurogenomics if you're interested in DNA testing. This is the email. Here's our website if you wanna learn more. And then for those of you that are involved in these sort of things, I'm not on any of these, um, you can do those. 
And then neuro needs, um, a company that I'm involved with that makes these products. This is how you reach neuro needs. And um, thank you very much. And I did go over, this is the first time I gave this talk. I'm gonna have to cut out some slides or talk faster if I'm gonna kit it in an hour. It's all good. Thank you so much, Dr. Bowles. We appreciate all of this great information. And um, we'll, we'll be sure to include this in the show notes for the podcast and when we post so that people can access these links and connect with you as you need to. So we're going to open up for questions. Um, if you're on your computer, you can submit your questions in the Q&A at the bottom of the screen. If you're on your phone, please feel free to email your questions to info at mitoaction.org. And I am going to turn it over to Stephanie, and she's going to kick off the Q&A. All right, Dr. Bulls, thank you for that great presentation. Um, always, always a pleasure to hear, hear your knowledge on this. Um, we have a first question is, uh, from someone who said, I had whole exome gene testing in 2020 that was not diagnostic. How long should I wait before testing again? And is whole exome avail able to capture everything to deter? Oh, there's a lot of important things in there. I don't know how to answer it for this individual patient, but there's a lot of caveats in there. First of all, some labs are much better than other labs and their accuracy is much better. I don't know what lab it was done. Um, second of all, it was whole exome, not whole genome. So with whole exome is you're missing all of the area between genes, you're missing all the medium size and large. Third, I don't know if the mitochondrial DNA was sequenced or how well it was sequenced. Um, fourth, I don't know if there was a trio or a singleton. If the patient has neurodevelopmental problems and or birth defects and only one and only the patient was done, you really need a trio. So it may be that it was a good lab and 2020 certainly is not that long ago. And it may be that a trio was done or it's all functional disorders that are inherited and you don't need a trio. Um, and it could be that a microarray was done in another lab and it was normal. And of course, you're not gonna find everything that way, but you know, you're gonna find 80% of it on a whole exome and a microarray, 80% um, of what we know about. So it could be very well that what was done is adequate and what you need is to have it reevaluated. Um, and it's not really how long it's to be reevaluated, it's who does it. If it's um, cyclic vomiting or autism or some other sort of weird migraine or other neurodevelopmental thing, then I'm, you know, th that's my expertise. If it's a movement disorder, you would wanna find a movement disorder geneticist that would look at the sequence. If it's um, endocrine issues, you'd want you know, like an endocrine, you know, geneticist or something. These are not easy to find. It's people that can, can do this. But you would really want somebody that can take a look at the raw sequence data. I don't know if that lab was, would even give somebody the raw sequence data. Some labs will give it to me really easily. Some of them charge an arm and a leg. Some of them won't give it no matter what because it was research and they can't give it away. So I would say that those are all things to think about. If you've had sequencing and you either A, want to redo the sequencing or B, that you um, want to have the sequencing re-looked at. So that was like five questions in one. <laughs> it was, but that was really great information. Um, we have somebody asking if you have studied any patients who have an autoimmune condition, uh, particularly, is it Sorgones, S-J-O-G-R-E-N-S, where fatigue is common? And is it more likely that someone 
like this would have a genetic mutation? Um, when I give the autism talk, I mean, I talk about mitochondria, I talk about channelopathies, I talk about um, auto-inflammatory, which is a type of autoimmune disease. Um, I was trying to stick to mito as much as possible on this. Autoimmune or auto-inflammatory disorders, many of the genes are known. And sometimes we can make a diagnosis of an exact auto-inflammatory disorder, and then that leads to specific therapy. Um, sometimes is that we can make a diagnosis of an, of an immune disorder, either immune deficiency and the immune system's not working or autoimmune and the immune system's overworking. And there isn't a, there isn't a direct treatment for that, but just the fact that you have a proven diagnosis of, of an immune problem will get the insurance company to pay for IVIG, which kind of, you know, it's like the, the hand grenade. It, it, it causes side effects, but it hits almost everything in the immune system. It just knocks it all out. Um, and by the way, a lot of the same patients have immunodeficiency and autoimmune disease because the problem is their immune system just doesn't know when to attack. So it doesn't attack some infections and it overattacks and causes autoimmunity. That particular autoimmune disorder, I'm not experienced with the sequencing on, but um, it's... I'm trying to get more people involved in this. And I mean, I, with time, I think that we'll get more people involved in immunogenetics um, to take a look at um, sequences from the standpoint of autoimmune disorders and to looking at that. Um, in the kids, I'm not bad at that. Looking at the, in the adults, um, I'm, I'm a pediatrician. So it's just those diseases I don't understand as well. Thank you. That's. Um being a, a mom of a mito patient who's gone through IV IG therapy, I completely laughed in my head about the hand grenade metaphor because that is exactly what happens. Yeah. Uh, that, was, that was a good analogy. Is there any medication for ACAD9 errors? Riboflavin sometimes works. I mean, it's, I can't give medical advice. So this is all, you know, in general. I mean, it's you get complex one deficiencies. And so mitochondrial cocktail in general would be helpful. Riboflavin might be helpful in particular. If you have an exact diagnosis, there's three possibilities. A, that that diagnosis is the cause of your disease and nothing else is there. There's a possibility. Number two is that that's really not what it is. It's something else. And people grabbed on that because they saw that that might be it, but their real diagnosis is something else. But most of the time it's in between. Yeah, it is that, but there's some other stuff there as well. And this other stuff might be treatable. So sequencing might help find the other stuff. Um, and even if it is ADC9 by itself, um, I mean, I'm, I don't have a lot of experience with those patients, but knowing where it is in the pathways, I would expect that it would get better, but I don't have practical experience on a bunch of those patients to say that with any certainty. Okay. Does it make sense to use the whole genome sequencer on patients that have a diagnosis of POTS but are refractory to standard treatments? Uh, you know, that is, if you have POTS and absolutely nothing else, then the chance of finding something genetic, is, it's not zero at all, but it's less. If you have anxiety or depression or migraine or chronic fatigue and nothing else at all, then, I mean, you can find something. And sometimes I do find diagnoses on that, but it's more likely if there's other things as well, particularly if there's other people in the family that have things. So just POTS by itself, 
there are some genetic abnormalities that can cause that. And certainly it could be a mild case of something that often causes other things. So I would say that, you know, sequencing might find it, but it's lower yield. But if there's other stuff as well, then I would say, yeah, probably go ahead. And then one last question we have is, and I think you did address this, but maybe we should just recap it. How do you know if it's a primary or secondary dysfunction? And is there a different test to have to determine that? I mean, I, we used to do the genetic approach in which you look at the patient, you look at their face, you do a whole bunch of tests and you say, okay, it might be this gene. So let's test that gene. It might be that gene. So let's test that gene. Now I use the genomics approach, which is you just sequence all of the genes and you find variants in the gene. You say, okay, this variant might be related to disease. So you go back and say, what does the face look like? What is, you know, the laboratory test? What it, you know, then you can go do the, your biochemical testing. Um, this variant might be it. So that's, see that variant. Um, I start at whole genome sequencing in almost everybody and then go from there. It, primary or secondary is really gonna come out. Well, first of all, if there is mitochondrial dysfunction on other tests, I use MitoSwab. I have no conflict of interest with the MitoSwab company, Reliagen, I like their work. Um, it's much better than muscle biopsy. It's a lot cheaper. You just use saliva. It is a little bit, um, there's some mitodocs that don't think that it's good. Other mitodocs use it all the time. Some are in between. I'm one that says that I like the results. If the mito swab shows clear mitochondrial abnormalities and the patient looks like mitochondrial dysfunction, then I say, okay, there's mitochondrial dysfunction. Primary versus secondary is going to be which gene it is. If the gene's in the mitochondria, it's primary. If it's out of the mitochondria, it's secondary. But oftentimes it's both. There's one in the mitochondria and there's one out of the mitochondria. Now, we're going to have to do something with the nomenclature. The problem is, is that we know so much now that the, what people have is really based upon their individual genetics. Um, and diagnoses are really becoming personalized. I agree. And I think you, we used, you uh, touched on it earlier with, we know more and now we have new vernacular to implement into how we're discussing things. And this is just such a rapidly changing landscape that it's just, it's hard to, to stay caught up with the exact new terminology and, and what it really means. Uh, but one thing is, is that we sequence the whole genome now. So it's not, right. it's not going to be like, wait, next year, they'll sequence twice as much for half the price. <laughs> It's right. pretty much, you know, now we can, we can do all of it and put it on the computer and yeah, next year we'll understand it more, but it's still going to be on the computer. Right. And is that why it's um, so much quicker to do the reanalysis on the time framing? Is that because it can, it's already in the computer and it's basically just being run again against the new algorithms? Yes. Excellent. All right. Well, thank you, Dr. Bowles. Your contributions to our community and genetic science is just changing lives, especially for those of us who just keep struggling to, to support our families in the rare disease community and finally find a diagnosis. Um, we are just very grateful for you and your commitment to this uh, very precise science. So thank you so much for You're coming welcome. in today. Thank you so much, Dr. Bowles. As always, we appreciate you. And we know that you're always at the forefront of diagnoses. And so we look forward to continuing these conversations with you and continuing to learn more. So we, we thank you for your time.
So as a reminder, today's presentation will be posted on the MitoAction website for anyone who would like to listen again or share with others. You can also find the full catalog of our expert series presentations on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, and on the MitoAction website. We thank each and every one of you for joining us today for our monthly Mito Expert series. Have a wonderful weekend, and we look forward to connecting with you again soon. Thank you so much. Take care, everyone. Bye-bye.